You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. So the Bible reading today is from Zechariah chapter 9, 9 to 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Thanks, Yvette, for reading. Um, Hi, as Aaron introduced me before, my name's Daniel. I'm a member here at DPC. And uh, if you could keep that passage open in your Bibles, that'd be great as we look through uh, Zechariah chapter 9 today. Uh, Well, today it's only 14 days until Christmas. And I really love Christmas time. Uh, I love lots of things about Christmas. I love Christmas carols. I'm, uh, I'm usually a person who doesn't really let Christmas carols in the house until the 1st of December. I'm usually pretty strict on that. But unfortunately, one of my favourite artists, John Van Dusen, released a Christmas carols album uh, in the last week of November, which is a bit rude, but I I had to break the rule. I had to listen to it. Um, But yeah, I love lots of things. Um, Anna, my wife, is... um, uh, She's the main protagonist in our house of the Christmas decorations and those sorts of things. Um, And this year, she's made a little um, wreath with some candles around it, with some attributes of Jesus on them that we sort of light um, uh, when we're having dinner time and we read a Christmas story together with the kids and they get a little lolly from the lolly bag, from the um, advent bag and so it's all very exciting. Is there a um, slide up there, Cam? Yeah, so here's um, Anna's little creation that she's made Um, and I've really been thankful for this because it's helped me focus in on the message of Zechariah chapter 9, particularly the front two candles there that say joy and peace. Um, because, yeah, I'm going to um, hopefully, as we read through this passage today, that we'll see that God's coming king, as we uh, Yvette read out about just now, is coming to bring us joy and peace. Um, So I'm hoping that we'll see that Jesus is the king of the whole world who brings joy and peace on earth. Thanks, Cam. Now that can sound really nice and fluffy and sound like something you might hear in a Christmas carol or read on a Christmas card or something, but what does that actually mean? How does that really hit home? How does Jesus, uh, the king who... How is he the king that brings joy and peace? Um, And how does that make much of a difference in your life? After all, uh, for some people, Christmas time can be a bit of a hard time and feel like there's there's not much joy um, and people can feel a bit run down towards the end of the year and that you can't find any peace at all. Um, I know that I personally am feeling a bit tired and a bit run down. It's, um, it's been a big year and perhaps some of you uh, are feeling the same as well. So, yeah, sometimes it's a bit hard to find that, that joy and peace at Christmas time. Well, I think as we look into this passage in Zechariah today... Um, We'll see how that can be the case, how um, Jesus is the king that brings joy and peace. Because in Zechariah's time, being joyful and being at peace would have been 
a far cry from the people that Zechariah was writing to, um, from their, their situation. The people of Israel that Zechariah was prophesying to needed to hear this message of joy and peace just as much as you and I do. And that's because uh, at this time when Zechariah was written, times were pretty tough for the people of Israel. Uh, This was written 500 years before the coming of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, The book of Zechariah is a collection of writings um, from the prophet Zechariah from about 520 BC onwards. And this is a time in biblical history we know as the post-exilic period, that is the, the time after Israel's exile in Babylon. So if I just back up a bit further, though, let's paint the picture of, of where we are before we jump into the passage. God had promised to his people, the people of Israel, that they would be his special chosen people and that he would uh, have them as his treasured possession out of all the people in the earth. He promised this when he delivered them out of Egypt and brought them through the waters of the Red Sea, that he would be their God and they would be his people and they would be living under his chosen king. But he also warned them that if they went astray from God and followed other gods and ignored God's covenant, that he would actually dispossess them of their land, take them out of their land. And sadly, that's exactly what happened after Many centuries of God being very patient with Israel, God finally said that enough was enough. Um, This period of the exile happened in stages, but it began in about 605 BC when Nebuchadnezzar um, from the Babylonians uh, attacked and defeated Israel. Jerusalem was destroyed. The king was captured and taken away. The temple was burned with fire and the people were either killed or led away as captives. But in God's incredible and abundant grace, he promised through the prophet Jeremiah that this would only be temporary, it'd be a temporary exile, that after 70 years he would bring them back to their chosen land. Um, that, and approximately 70 years later, God is a God who keeps his promises. That's exactly what happened. Um, God brought his people out of Babylon, out of exile, um, back to their land, and they were actually given funds to return to their land and rebuild their temple from the new empire, from the new Persian empire at the time. And so you might be thinking, well, that's great, isn't it? They got to return their, to their land. They get to rebuild their temple. They get their land back. But actually, in the time when Zechariah the prophet was writing, the return from exile was actually a bit of a letdown. Only a really small portion of Jewish exiles actually returned to the land. It was actually apparently hard to drum up support from the Jewish people in Babylon to actually return to the land of Israel. They were getting pretty comfortable there. And and when they did return to Israel, they were facing such hostility at the time that in the book of Nehemiah, when when Nehemiah is describing the rebuilding of the, the walls, it says they had a sword in one hand and their building tools in the other hand, while they were trying to rebuild the wall because they were being attacked so, so often. And, and then, when they start to rebuild the temple, there's some older people uh, there who, who were still there, who were still alive when the previous temple had been built, and they were weeping when the temple's being built because it's such, uh, uh, so, so less impressive and so, so much smaller than the previous temple. And, and 
just to top it all off, they didn't have a king as well. So things aren't looking great. And it would sort of be like after two years of COVID lockdowns, when you've been working at home for two years in lockdowns and the time finally comes for you to return to work, to the work office, and see all your workmates, it's really exciting. But then you get back to the work office and you actually find that two-thirds or three-thirds of your uh, <laughs> um, workmates are not actually there because they prefer to work from home and the coffee machine's not working and the cleaner hasn't come through in six months. And that's the kind of vibe that you're getting here um, for the people in Zachariah's time, except, like, a lot worse for them. And so in Zechariah's time, the result is that there's actually a lot of spiritual apathy. They're sort of like, was it all worth it? All this hassle to return to Jerusalem, and the grass doesn't seem much greener on the other side. And wouldn't you be tempted to feel the same in their situation? Maybe you're feeling a little bit of spiritual apathy yourself at the moment. Maybe you're feeling similar at the moment. So they hadn't had their glorious return. Things weren't as joyful and, and peaceful as they had hoped. And it's into this disappointing and apathetic situation that God delivers this message through Zechariah to sh- and, and he's showing his faithfulness and his grac- gra- graciousness to the people in delivering them this message. So if you have a look down there in verse 9, we are told that the coming king brings joy We were told back in verse 1 of chapter 9 that this is the word of the Lord, so it's God speaking, and he tells this post-exilic community in Israel to rejoice greatly and shout aloud. So God is imploring the people to have joy and shout aloud as if they've just won a great victory. And you'll see there that God is referring to Israel as a personified city, the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem, which is just a metaphorical way of referring to the whole city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel in general with sort of familiar overtones and relational overtones. It's it's showing that God has a father-child-like relationship, a very close, intimate relationship with his people. It's sort of similar uh, in the way we speak about sister cities or sister schools. Uh, Growing up, you might have had a sister school with your school that you played sport against and that sort of thing. It's the same sort of language going on here. Uh, And why are they to have joy and shout aloud? Well, that's the next bit of the verse. It says, see, your king comes to you. Now, remember the returned exiles have no king in Israel at the moment. They have a leader, Zerubbabel. But the ideal is that they have a king from the line of David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, which is not the case at the moment. That was their, their hope. They wanted a king from the line of David. And so, so maybe this is the king. And you might notice there in your Bibles that some Bibles uh, refer to the starting of Zechariah 9 here as the return of the king. And that's probably just because, for whatever reason, there seems to be some strong correlation between people who really like reading the Bible and people who really like reading the Lord of the Rings. Um, Because there's the return of the king being described here. But actually, on a serious note, it, it describes well, the return of the king describes well what is being promised in this passage because there was a king, now there is no king, and they're waiting for the return of the king. They're waiting for a king from the line of David to return to their people. And we get the description 
of this king. There, this king is described as being righteous, and the NIV says there as well that he is victorious. So there again, there's some reasons to rejoice for this Israelite community to have joy, especially because of the situation they're in. Now, just a quick, um, just a quick spoiler alert. I'm going to be arguing later on that this coming king is referring to Jesus, which is probably not a big surprise to a lot of you, but just so you know there, um, just a heads up. Um, and if that's the case, then we've got no qualms about this coming king being described as righteous, if we've got Jesus in mind here. But the second description of the coming king here, that he's victorious, poses a bit of a problem there in verse 9, because the adjective there means to be saved. If you've got, um, that's what it, um, yeah, victorious is what it says in the NIV. If you've got an ESV there, it says something about having salvation or bringing salvation with him. But that doesn't capture the, the passive sense of this word here. It's actually a word that's in the original text is saying that he is being saved, that he has been saved. So this carries a bit of a, bit of a different emphasis, right? Uh, but it's one that actually lines up with, really well with the pattern of what we see of, of what, the coming, what the king in Israel in the Old Testament was supposed to be like. The king of Israel in the Old Testament was supposed to be relying on God for his saving acts. The king himself was supposed to be, in a sense, saved by God. And the prime example of this is David, of course, who many times, especially in the Psalms, asks for God to save him from his enemies. The, yep, so the coming king is to be a king who is himself saved. So to the people of Israel, to the people that Zechariah is writing to, they won't have any troubles with the coming king as being saved because that was in their expectations of their king. And for us, um, if we see this coming king as ultimately pointing forward to Jesus, we shouldn't have any problems with this either because in Jesus' earthly life, there are actually many times when Jesus was himself saved. If we think of uh, the... The escape to Egypt when Herod was trying to kill all the baby boys um, in Bethlehem. That's one time that Jesus was saved. Um, if we think about in the wilderness for 40 days, uh, Jesus was relying on God's word for, to be saved from that situation. And probably most uh, emphatically, really, when Jesus was raised from the dead, God saved Jesus from the dead. It says in Acts chapter 2 that God raised him up. It was God the one who was raising him up, loosing the pangs of death, as we read in Acts chapter 2. So what this, what this does then is, uh, for the coming king described here in Zechariah 9, it places the king firmly within the expectations of what the coming king, the Messiah of Israel, would be like. The king is righteous and he's reliant on God and his saving acts as he carries out his kingly rule. And just as a side point here, if Jesus in his earthly life was reliant on God to save him, how much more should we do the same? How much more should we rely on God in our time of need for all things? Now, for those of you who love donkeys, 
Uh, here's the part where the donkey comes in. Um, we all have some sort of fondness for donkeys, don't we? I mean, I do. Um, maybe because they're somewhat comical in some sort of way. Um, my kids have a story, a storybook at home called The Wonky Donkey. I don't know if you, any of you have heard of it. It's this, about this donkey who's only got three legs and he's only got one eye and he smells really bad, etc. Um, yeah, and so th there's this idea that do donkeys, in our context at least, are somewhat comical. But that wasn't the case in ancient times. Donkeys weren't very uh, comical. Um, you see, I used to think that in verse 9 here that the coming king is humble and riding on a donkey because that's somehow like laughable that he's coming riding on a donkey. Um, but actually, um, a donkey was something, uh, an animal that was really useful for getting lots of work done, could carry heavy loads and, and you know, bear heavy burdens, get lots of work done. So the reason this coming king is humble, as it says there in verse 9, is because he's riding on a donkey in contrast to coming in, say, on a horse. The person riding the horse is a bit more you know, lofty, a bit more military-like, sort of commanding authority. In contrast to the person who's coming on a donkey, who is someone who's really here to get some work done, who's ready to roll up their sleeves and actually really help people. It's sort of like the contrast, um, perhaps, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe between Iron Man coming in to swoop, swoop in to save the day with all his sort of arrogance and bravado uh, in contrast to your fr friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man, perhaps, if that, that works for you. Now, that's not to say that this coming king won't uh, command authority. It's clear from the following verses that he will do that, but his leadership is characterised by service rather than with a high, ruling with a high hand. This king comes to serve and not to be served. And that's really good news for the people of Israel. No wonder they're said to rejoice greatly and shout aloud. Their coming king is coming not to you know, cripple them with taxes and demand loyalty, but to genuinely help them. And that's really good news for you too. Because this king, the very same king we're reading about here in Zechariah, from a prophecy 500 years BC, this king will bring you deep joy when you realise that he came to serve you and he gave to give his life as a ransom for you. Jesus doesn't first ask you to prove your worthiness or loyalty to him. He makes the first move. He comes as the king who serves you. And for me, that brings a lot of joy. Let's look down there at verse 10, the next bit of the passage. It says there in verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Okay, now, if you love your English grammar and look at those verses there, you'll see the first half of verse 10 is spoken in the first person, where it says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim. So that's the Lord speaking in the first person because it's flowing on from the start of the, the passage in verse 1. 
Whereas the last half of the verse is from the perspective of the third person, where it says, he will proclaim peace to the nations. And some of you are probably just going like, yeah, yeah, I know. But uh, if you're like me and didn't pay much attention at English grammar at school, you might be like, why are there three people? Where's the second person? Um, but just go along with it with me for now, and it'll make sense. Uh, so the first bit from the Lord seems pretty surprising, doesn't it? It's pretty surprising. It seems a bit strange that the king would come and then the first thing God does is take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and break their bows. I mean, isn't that shooting yourself in the foot a bit? I mean, the people of Israel were being harassed by these tribes, the people surrounding Jerusalem. They needed protection. The long-awaited king comes to them and they're probably like, okay, sweet, now you can fight all our battles for us, we can be a bit more secure and whatever. But the first thing God says is, chariots and war horses, get rid of them. Bows and arrows, break them up, use them for firewood. And the people of Israel are probably just like, no, 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 no. And God's just like, yeah, 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 I got this, it's okay. It would be like sort of... um, if in the men's Australian cricket team right now, if the men's Australian cricket team got a new coach and if the first thing the new coach comes in and says, all right, your team's looking okay, but we've got to get rid of Manus Labuschagne and we've got to get rid of Pat Cummins, okay? It would be like, that would be a crazy move. And for those of you who are not as enthused about cricket, those, that's the best batsman and the best bowler in the world right now, both in the Australian men's cricket team. It would be a crazy thing to do. That's sort of like what's going on here. But this strategy might actually ring a bit of a bell uh, from the book of Judges, from the story of Gideon, where God actually takes Gideon's army of 32,000 people and whittles it down to an army of 300 people. Um, same sort of thing is going on here. The point was it was going to be so clear that it was going to be divine intervention that wins the day. God is saying, as he's already th- said through Zechariah's prophetic words earlier in the book, that it's not by might and not by power that he's going to bring deliverance. It's not through great armies or military strength. But so how is God going to accomplish his purposes? Well, the next part of the verse tells us how he's going to deal with things. God is going to use Israel's coming king to proclaim peace to the nations. See there in the second part of verse 10? He says that he, the coming king, will proclaim peace to the nations. So why should you rejoice? Because God's coming king is coming and he's bringing peace with him. Now, among Jewish people at the time of Jesus, especially among the Jewish leaders, there was this common perception that the coming king, the Messiah, would bring with him military might to, be thro- to throw off the rule of their oppressors, of the Romans. That was the common conception among the Jewish people around Jesus' time. But you can see here from this verse from the Old Testament that that was actually a misconception that they had about the Messiah. The Messiah of Israel that we know as Jesus wasn't coming as a military leader, but as we see here in Zechariah chapter 9, he was coming to speak peace to the nations. He wasn't coming to bring war, he was coming to bring peace. And just like the people of Israel in Zechariah's day couldn't really comprehend the Messiah as someone who wouldn't come as a military leader. Sadly, today, that's 
Uh, most Jewish people don't know that about the, their Messiah. In fact, uh, today, most Jewish people have sort of given up on the idea of a Messiah altogether. Um, how good would it be if Jewish people today knew Jesus, their Messiah, has already come? And it's great news for you too, by the way. You might be thinking, this is clearly an Old Testament prophecy directed at people of Israel two and a half thousand years ago. But who is God speaking to here? Who is God's king speaking to? He's speaking peace to the nations. The nations there is the same word as the Gentiles, which is most of us here. God's coming king was to promise to bring peace not just to his own people, but to all peoples. How do we know it's all peoples? Well, it's there at the end of the passage. His rule will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So that's, that's global peace. That's real peace. That's peace that this world really needs. And it's peace that's only available through God's coming King Jesus. What kind of peace does he bring? Well, last weekend, our family went along to a Colin Buchanan concert. Um, it was lots of fun. Elijah dressed up in a reindeer costume and I had a horse head on for the horsey dance, if anyone knows the horsey dance from Colin Buchanan. Uh, but I think Colin's uh, other song gets this spot on when he says, the greatest treasure in the whole wide world is peace with God. That's right. The greatest treasure in the whole wide world is peace with God. Last week, Aaron spoke about God making his home with us, and that's only possible if we have peace with God. So the coming king brings joy, the coming king brings peace. But how do we know that this coming king is Jesus? Well, the words of this passage might sound a bit familiar to you, and that's because they're quoted in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew. There Jesus specifically arranges for this prophecy from Zechariah 9 to be fulfilled. So if you've got your Bibles there, if you would like to flick to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew, in your Bibles there, Matthew 21, and I'm going to read out for us the first bit of Matthew chapter one, uh, 21. I'll give you a moment to find it there. So this is Matthew 21, and I'll just read the first 11 verses. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed the cloaks on, the, on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! 
Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, you can't miss what Jesus is doing here. He's deliberately orchestrating for himself to fulfill this prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9. Jesus is self-aware that he is the coming king to Israel and that he's going to speak peace to the nations and his rule is going to be to the ends of the earth. And this is one of the many moments in the Gospels that force you to get off the fence about who Jesus is. Um, He's not just a good teacher or a good moral example. He is God's coming king. After reading the story In Matthew here, where Jesus deliberately arranges for himself to fulfill Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah 9, you have to make your choice about Jesus. Either Jesus is being intentionally deceptive and wrongly assuming God's the place as God's coming king. And actually, if you read the parallel account of this in Luke, um, that's what the, the Pharisees were trying to stop Jesus because they assumed he didn't want to be inadvertently blaspheming by fulfilling this prophecy. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He's not being deceptive. He knows who he is. He is Israel's coming king. And if you're a Christian here, if you believe in Jesus, he is your king too. He offers you peace. And not just at Christmas time, but at all time, for eternity even. And if perhaps you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, perhaps this is time to consider who Jesus really was and who he claimed to be. Uh, Now, this all might sound um, really nice, all this talk about Jesus bringing joy and peace, but we all know and feel that our world at the moment is not at peace right now. War in Ukraine, floods in Pakistan, even on the home front here in Melbourne, we've been reminded this year in multiple ways that the world is, in general, not at peace with Christians and Christianity. We know that with all these things, we won't have ultimate peace until Jesus comes again to make all things new, to bring the new creation where he brings radical peace to the ends of the earth. But we still have peace right now, and that's peace with God. In a moment, we're going to sing the song, Behold Our God. And we're going to sing in the third verse that we behold Jesus bearing all the guilt of sinful man. That's how we have peace right here, right now, because Jesus, our King, came to serve us by bearing our guilt. And I don't know about you, but that brings me a lot of joy. Uh, Would you pray with me as we finish up? Heavenly Father, thank you that for those who trust in you, that you have made a way through Jesus to have peace with God. We praise you, Jesus, that you are the King, that you have come and you will come again. And we can rejoice that you have come and made peace. Please help that sink deep into our hearts today, we pray. Amen.